You know what? What? Hmm? Sometimes you just need to let the conversation speak for itself. I could tell you so much about Vijay Iyer. I could probably tell you too much about him. Where he grew up. Rochester. How he spent time in California in the 90s. Mostly Oakland. About how he moved to New York and became one of the most critically acclaimed composer pianists of his generation. He was described by the New York Times as a social conscious multimedia collaborator. System Bill Rhapsodist, historical thinker and multicultural gateway. He's the son of Indian Tamil immigrants and he belongs to a generation who explored and shaped the conversation around what it means to be Indian American. He's won awards. MacArthur Fellowship. Doris Duke Performing Artist Award. Downbeat Magazine's Jazz Artist of the Year four times in the last decade. He's recorded for major labels. ECM. Verve. He's been commissioned to compose for big-name ensembles. Brooklyn Rider. Monty Woods. American Composers Orchestra. Bang on a Can. All-Star. The Silk Road Ensemble. He's spent time in academia. He got a BA in Mathematics and Physics at Yale. And a PhD from UC Berkeley in Technology and the Arts, focusing on music cognition. Today he teaches at Harvard. But ultimately this conversation will speak for itself. Without me, or me, or me, needing to tell you much of anything. Welcome to the third story. I'm Leo Sidrin. I'm Leo Sidrin. He's Leo Sidrin. I spoke to Vijay Iyer at the end of 2022 about his life and career, his motivations, and above all, his approach to working. What you hear behind me is the song Children of Flint from his 2021 ECM trio album, Uneasy, which was recorded in the days just before COVID and finished during the pandemic. The trio features Tyshawn Sori on drums, and Linda Mahan O on bass. Vijay recently released Love in Exile, a collaboration with singer Aruj Aftab and bassist Shazad Ismaili. It came out on Verve last month. With so many facets to his career and work, I was curious to know what the unifying thread was running through his journey. I can relate, me too. I have to say that this conversation was a very pleasant surprise. Vijay's credentials are so daunting that I was a bit nervous going in, but he revealed himself to be a total cat Totally approachable, funny, down-to-earth, extremely smart and thoughtful, but also sensitive and easygoing. Third-Story.com is the place to sign up, subscribe, visit the archive, hundreds of conversations with creative innovators, including Vijay's collaborators like Taishan Sari and Rudresh Mahanthapa, as well as other piano-playing public intellectuals, including Jason Moran, Fred Hirsch, Kenny Werner, and I dare say Ben Sidrin, too. The third story is made in partnership with WBGO Studios. Visit wbgo.org slash studios to find out more about all their award-winning content and visit patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast to support this project on a deeper level. Please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or some stars. Tell your friends. Spread the word. Here's me and Vijay Iyer talking, talking it down. down. Vijay Iyer, it's so nice to meet you and um, I'm so glad that we have this time to talk because often when I talk to people, we're talking about a specific project or a specific promotional cycle that they're on. And I don't get the sense that that's what we're doing here today. So it's nice to kind of talk to you off cycle, just about where you where you are. Oh, it's always some kind of cycle. But yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I know it was in the works for a while. And I know you've been doing this for a while. So glad to be a part of it. Well, I want you to tell me about the cycle that you're on now. But before you do, I was thinking about how to approach this conversation with you. And then it occurred to me that you are the perfect person to try this with because of your shared passions of science, physics, and math and music, and your interest in technology and the arts. I want to do something with you that I've never done before. I asked ChatGPT to generate an opening question with you. And this is what ChatGPT asks of you. How do you see the relationship between the arts and technology evolving in the 21st century? 
And how has your own work as a musician and composer been influenced by advances in technology? And frankly, I don't think I would have come up with uh, a stronger opening question for you. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, I'll try. I don't actually think of myself as all that much of a technology person any more than the rest of us. I mean, we all are dealing with devices all the time. I always remind myself that musical instruments are technology already. So the piano is this big chunk of technology from the early modern period, you know, from the, from the last few hundred years. And it's pretty awkward when you think about it as a piece of machinery. It's some kind of interface through which we try to transduce our feelings. You know? <laughs> it's kind of like, it's kind of ridiculous that like I pushed down some buttons and maybe somebody across the room might cry or something, you know, <laughs> like that that's, I mean, I sort of sound like a stoner. Like it's like, <laughs> Do you ever really look at your hand? You yeah. know, do you ever really look inside the piano? It's kind of like that. Um, but partly just to defamiliarize what we take for granted, what we what's given to us as like the stuff of music, you know. So music and technology have been intertwined since the beginning. Right. And, it, and in fact, like the first technology was the body. That's the, the first music making technology. Some means by which we we as human beings <laughs> in the deep past tried to express something about who we were, but also reaching beyond who we were, you know? So that's just kind of, music is made of that. It, it always was. It, you know, I didn't actually, in my studies, such as they were, I didn't study much about technology. I did try to intervene on this research field in music cognition and by intervene i mean like critique it you hmm. know like like actually tell them they're wrong <laughs> <laughs> or like they're forgetting something foundational and in fact what my way back in the 90s what i did as a dissertation was trying to remind people that music is first and foremost human action so it's made of what the things that people do with you know, what we do with our bodies is what becomes music, you know, whether it's using our voices or gesturing or moving our limbs and so, or fingers in some way, you know, so it comes from there. It doesn't come from anywhere else. And the reason that I found myself having to say that is because the way people talked about music was as if it was separate from us. Hmm. And the reason we've been tricked into thinking that in the first place is because of recording technology, which allows music to circulate in the absence of bodies, mm. <laughs> you know? So like, so you could get this, you know, vinyl disc that bears the sonic traces of someone doing something, but you don't have to think about that person too much. You know, you can just hear it in abstraction and forget that there was ever some person or a group of people mm. involved in the doing of it, you know? And so because of that, we talk about music as this object or as this substance rather than as this thing that people do together as an action, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like what I had to sort of remind, in particular, what I was trying to remind scientists who try to talk about music is that they're talking about music as if it exists irrespective of us and that we just receive it, you know? So it seems like really basic when I put it that way. Like I was explaining the obvious, 
but it was partly because I felt there was something, you know, these were scientists who were trying to talk about human universals, but they were caught up in this way of thinking that's only 100 years old or 150 hmm. years old. So that's what I was trying to do. It was like disabuse them. They didn't listen to me, <laughs> <laughs> but I tried and I still try. Um, they still call me every now and then and say, hey, you want to give a talk? And I say, yeah, but I'm going to say the same thing that I've been saying for 25 years. <laughs> anyway, that was like the beginning of it is like technology can sometimes, so first of all, that music is the act of using technology to some expressive means, but technology can also obscure from us what music does or is or is for. Mm -hmm. And so I think we experience all of that nowadays like very intensely both the you know we can be dazzled by someone doing something right um like uh i don't know an instagram clip of jacob collier or somebody that, you know something like it's like, wow i didn't know you could do that you know that's mm -hmm. amazing that's humanly extreme there's something extreme and like unlikely and virtuosic about it and it can be like 30 seconds of that and then you think like wow why is it more music like that? Hmm. You know? <laughs> but then you don't, you know, you forget that like this has been delivered to you in this very disembodied way, actually. And that, you know, it takes advantage of that, of the fact that you're just sitting still and staring at something. Yeah, I think that th that whole conversation was maybe reframed a little bit when we were in our own kind of private captivity during COVID, you know, and for the first time, I could really think, thank God for YouTube, thank God for social media, because I can see people doing things that I wouldn't be able to see, and I was connected to them. So I suppose I should turn the question on you and ask you know, what your experience was during that time, especially considering you've been kind of arguing on behalf of human bodies in a room together for <laughs> a long time. Right. And also about the aural, you know, like when we listen to recordings, which, you know, prior to mtv generation <laughs> which i think you're you and i are both a part of yes we are really uh it was recorded music that sort of told all the stories you know that mm -hmm. carried all the meaning and it did a lot of work part of what it did was it activated our fantasies you know like meaning like we had to sort of imagine i mean the way i put it earlier was a bit simplistic because actually what happens when you can't see who's doing it is that you start to imagine instead so you construct some illusion for yourself about like well what did this person look like mm -hmm. what were they wearing was it a man or a woman what, how many people is it what are they holding where are they you know um and then aside alongside that all these other aspects of fantasy which have to do with race and gender and sexuality and all these other details that we kind of often engage in unconsciously some hmm. kind of assumption or a set of assumptions about you know like when's the first time you heard a jimmy scott record mm -hmm. for example and what did you think was happening and who did i think was yeah it was exactly. what did they look yeah. like yeah for example yeah How's everything in heaven? 
Or like the way that certain singers would kind of confuse your assumptions about race, you know, like, um, uh, did you see that film Summer of Soul? Mm -hmm. So that was where I first learned that the people who sang that song up, up and away <laughs> were who they were. Like, I didn't know that I was confused, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't hear the sort of racialized signifiers that I was used to hearing in black music, you right. know. And... Would you like to ride in my beautiful balloon? Would you like to ride in my beautiful balloon? We could float among the stars together, you and I. For we can Or like it could go the other way, like Tina Marie or somebody. Mm -hmm. So that's partly what happens is that we engage in a certain fantasy that has to do with our beliefs and assumptions that's part of the process of listening when video became like permanently adjoined to music <laughs> again then it was like oh well they it was kind of like that channel got shut down that sort of like fantasy channel that we had within us instead got kind of fused to these images that were essentially being used to sell us something you know mm -hmm. for the most part so i think what i found myself doing is trying to stay in the realm of the aural even though I kept being like enlisted. So to finally answer your question about like, what was I doing two years ago? Yeah. You know, because as musicians, we would get asked to like create a video performance as a gig, you know, instead of like getting yourself to a venue, playing the piano and leaving. Instead, it was like you had to be a video producer and a music producer mm -hmm. and like create these works, these multimedia works like by yourself in your home with whatever technology you had available. I mean, <laughs> it was annoying, you know, it wasn't what <laughs> I signed up for. I didn't sign up to be a, a TV producer, you know, that wasn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but the other side of it was like creating music for the future. I think that uh, even for an uncertain future, you know, mm. which some of it is composing, some of it's recording. And so did plenty of that. That is really interesting, the idea that composition is a kind of belief in the future. It is, it is. Right? I mean, you compose something to be performed at a later date. When the future is uncertain, you're really working from a much different and less stable context. Absolutely. The same is true with recording. I mean, in a way, in that sense, they're not that different, actually. Mm -hmm. That it's about creating something that you want to live on and even to outlast you, you know, mm -hmm. and then to be it a part of somebody else's world music for tomorrow <laughs> yeah music for tomorrow yeah i remember when i was putting the album uneasy together we had recorded it in december of 2019 and uh then it was that summer of 20 that i was sort of sorting through all the takes and trying to figure out or just make sense feel my way through like what is this album and mm -hmm. what does it mean anymore you know who is it for what does it have to offer to the world? 
you know, in this moment that we might never get out of, you know, like maybe mm. what is this the end of the world? And if so, does it need another album? You know, I was really like, <laughs> I think yeah. a lot of us were kind of going there around that time, yeah. like the beginning of the pandemic was like, uh, it, there was this kind of like sense of catastrophe and apocalypse and all this stuff like that was in the in the air, I would say. So, uh, you know, part of what I had to do was like summon for myself this sense of purpose and the sense of belief that there will be a tomorrow, you know, like mm -hmm. that real, it's an existential thing that you don't, it's kind of like what keeps you going. It's like what, well, why you wake up in the morning and things like that, but you don't think about it too much if you're lucky, you know, but like when you're making something that you want to live on in the world, then you suddenly are thinking about it in ways you weren't ready to, you didn't realize that you had to, you know. But I'm curious to know what conclusion you reached about what the work meant from that distance and then releasing it later after we'd all gone through this. One thing that I noticed about it was that, for example, you have this composition on Uneasy called Combat Breathing, which is a response to the death of... Um, Eric Garner. From that period in 2014, there were several, of course, quite a few, in fact, and still a an ongoing problem. And it really came to the uh, the national awareness during COVID, during that period between when you had recorded this version of it and when you released it, which on some level I imagine must have given you the sense that, yeah, this music is still highly relevant given the conditions of the world today. I think that for me, you know, the people who mentored me, you know, many of them grew up in the times of Jim Crow and, you know, witnessed or lived through outright, you know, legal or de facto segregation and experienced proximity to terror through their whole childhoods and adult lives. You know, I was just reading an excerpt from forthcoming autobiography of Henry Threadgill. Hmm. And he actually reveals that he knew Emmett Till. Hmm. They used to go to the same barbershop hmm. and they used to be like waiting to get their haircut together and stuff. And he talks about like what that moment was for a kid, you know, like a fellow kid to learn that like your life is in danger a as a child, what that does to a child, you know, this is the history of black music is that it's always been flourishing and dwelling in proximity to and in defiance of white supremacist terror and violence. I learned that, you know, I learned that from working with people of the, from those generations and I learned something about its ongoing nature, you know, and that music could be some kind of temporary respite from it. It could be some kind of like organizing battle cry it could be a healing force it could be an expression of rage it could be all those things sometimes all those things at once so that's kind of the what i learned from the elders about like how to be an artist in the world and to be an american artist to be an american artist of color and then also like for me just as a non-black person trying to understand my relationship to that 
legacy and what I have, what I might have to offer mm -hmm. without exploiting or cheapening it. I think this leads us to an interesting point. When you were talking about how we're the MTV generation and by seeing the artists, it may have subverted some of our assumptions about what was happening with the music. Considering you came of age in a generation when people would see you, I mean, all over they would see you. Uh, not that they wouldn't see you on the span stand in the 60s or the 50s or the 40s or whatever, but it's a little more public in the way we're presented is more visual today. You're also one of the first representatives of exploring South Asian diaspora in America and integrating it into the music that you make, particularly into improvised music. My first thought when you said that about the MTV generation is I wonder if a generation earlier it would have been something that you or someone who had a similar family background would have considered doing, trying to bring those two worlds together. And as you describe now, looking for your place in this conversation, it sort of brings me back around to that same question about how you approached exploring your Indian heritage in, in improvised music in America. Yeah, you know, um, a lot of what, you know, what makes me among the first is that there were not people like me prior to my generation, not in any large numbers. And that's because immigration law in the US was racist hmm. for most of the 20th century until the 60s. You know, non-Western immigrants were mostly not allowed and certainly Asians were excluded. There was something called the Asian Exclusion mm -hmm. Act different versions of it, Chinese Exclusion Act, you know, different things that it was like this kind of systemic state exclusion of non-Western people from the American story until the Immigration Act of 1965. I mean, there were a handful of examples prior to that. They're more anecdotal than really widespread shift in culture. But yeah, subsequent to that year, there was like, that was when people like you were born. I was born in 71, my sister 68. Mm -hmm. So we were like weirdos. There weren't many people like us in our neighborhood. It was hard to find people like us. Like I, I always tell the story, like I remember when I was a little kid in the 70s, my dad was going through the phone book looking for something and he goes, hey, Krishnan, that's an Indian name. He just found this name. He just came across this name. He was looking for something else. He's like, I'm going to call him. <laughs> so he called him up <laughs> and they became best friends. <laughs> like, that's really how, can you imagine? Like just out of nowhere, this person calls you up and says, hey, I'm from India. Who are you? What are you doing? You want to go have tea? You know, like it was really, you want to come over? You know, it was yeah. really like that. That family became like our best friends, uh, my parent, my parents' best friends. <laughs> So it was like like we had to find each other. Yeah. Now, like, there's more of a critical mass. It's generations deep. So you, you know, you can have a Mindy Kaling or, you know, or like Kumail mm -hmm. or Aziz Ansari yeah. or all these like yeah. very prominent South Asians and, you know, and entertainment and politics and business, you know, being great, being terrible vice president is half mm -hmm. Indian, you know, whatever. So yeah. like all that is now a bit more commonplace than it was at the time. And so for me to come of age at the time I did was like, we had to sort of figure out how to be people, you know, I guess I'd say how to be American 
what was our relationship to the American story that we were being mm -hmm. kind of um, indoctrinated into. We would hear about the pilgrims, you know, we would hear about the Re American Revolution. We would hear, if we were lucky as kids, we might hear about the civil rights movement, you mm -hmm. know, but no one was talking about us still, you know, like there yeah. wasn't any narrative that placed us as part of the American story. That was new. And so then when I grew up, like when I was in my 20s, I was like, well, I still, it wasn't clear to me that the world would let me be an artist because there was really like no, there was no one like us in the landscape of culture, period, except some kind of caricature every now and then, you know, mm -hmm. the Apu phenomenon or something like that. I remember the first such person was Jhumpa Lahiri, mm -hmm. <laughs> one of the first, you know, I mean, there were British Asians like Salman Rushdie, like we all knew about him, hmm. but it wasn't like you could turn on the TV and see somebody with a lived experience similar to yours, not even close, you know? Yeah. So becoming an artist for me was like, it felt like such a gamble. Like, I didn't know if anybody could even parse like my existence, you know, like, why are you here? why are you doing this? You know, like that kind of thing. That's actually how it felt to me. I'm just trying to clarify this because this is like 30 years ago. It's not like it is now. It wasn't like it is now. So I think like part of what I needed to make sense of both for myself and for whoever was listening was like, you know, you could think of it as like a playing out of that basically offensive question of where are you really from? Yeah. You know, uh, but also for myself, like, okay, well, at least let me cultivate a relationship to my heritage that's on my own terms and not on some externally imposed, impoverished logic. Let me just at least learn about it to the extent that it interests me. That's when it began. It was sort of like when I was in my early 20s, I was like, okay, well, what is that music that I've been hearing in the background all these years that I've been ignoring or avoiding even? What about it? is interesting to me. Do I care about it at all? I had to figure that out for myself. And so then like artistically, some of that played out as like, okay, well, that's kind of cool. This rhythmic idea, let me try it, you know, or like, oh, I like this Praga. I like the mode or like the kind of harmonies that it seems to offer. Let me try it. Let me just try some stuff. And then I was like, well, can I play with Indian musicians? Mm -hmm. I don't need to prove to the world that I can, but I want to make it I want to see if it can make sense for me. Just want to, just like, can I build something with someone who's from that tradition, who's like a Hindustani musician or a Carnatic musician or a Kabbali musician? So that's sort of where it started, was like from that set of questions. And part of that was also like, can I build community with others who are in the same predicament? So that's like, I started working with Rudresh. Yeah. We met each other in 95. Rudresh Mahantapa, and then it was like, oh, wow, we're actually in this together, whether we meant to or not, you know, so let's figure this out together. You know, we did. We made like dozen albums together yeah. you know, and played all over the world together.
So it sounds like by bringing that influence into your, your music, you actually had to allow the music to expand, to accommodate it. You were playing one way and into one sort of set of influences, and then by doing that exploration, you brought this other music into it. And I guess the reason I ask that is because if that, in fact, is the case, what happens now when you move beyond it and make music that isn't specifically asking those same questions? Do you bring that with you? Well, I think what I learned, you know, so what mattered to me in the early part of this whole thing was I was living in Northern California where basically the white people around me had a very set idea of what it meant to be Indian. Hmm. And I didn't want anything to do with that. You know, I didn't want that to become my fate, this kind of like fetishized, very shallow perspective on all things from the east or whatever you know it seemed very it seemed like a trap to me so i actually um i said this because you said something about being overt about it and uh -huh. i was never overt about it in fact i was always it was always like just for me i would just do it for myself i didn't care if anybody could hear it in fact i hope nobody could <laughs> <laughs> that's a bit extreme i'm not sure i meant that but you know what mattered to me like i said is like is this compatible with what a musician from South Asia might know or might be able to do. Mm -hmm. Can I create something that they could hear themselves in, mm -hmm. you know? And the fact is that most people in the West don't know jack shit about South Asian music. So like, so I didn't have to prove anything to them by like dressing it up in tablas and sitars or something like, but to me, like if a tabla player heard it and said, oh yeah, I was playing along to your record then i'm like okay that's all i needed actually mm -hmm. and that actually started to happen you know where i would have these interactions with musicians who had that background and they heard a way in for themselves so they could relate to it mm -hmm. you know so a lot of it developed that way which was that i was actually trying to tap into something that was common um rhythmically mm -hmm. basically tapping into some dance rhythmic impulses these rhythmic impulses that are for dance that are come that come from dance that are made for dance you know um some of them came from south asia some of them came from black american music some of them came from afro-caribbean music some of them came from west or central african music um a lot of different things that i was checking out to try to tap into that human dance impulse that mm -hmm. sense of movement and lift you know, and bounce and all these different ways of moving, essentially. That's kind of where it worked for me and what still continues to work for me. And that tends to be the main organizing impulse for me as a composer. Mm -hmm. Start start with rhythm. I start with not just rhythm in the abstract, but rhythm as a quality of movement. What does that mean? Well, like even if you look at symphonies, they have different movements. Mm. And what that What that actually means is not just sections, but ways of moving you know like there might even be a tempo marking that's actually a dance character mm -hmm. you know andante or something or mm -hmm. like uh arabesque or something like that you know they have like certain implications about not just how fast to play but how to play how to feel it mm -hmm. what it feels like to play it what it feels like to hear it you know what kind of quality of movement do you want to elicit from a listener that's basically the, that's maybe the foundation of almost all music, you could mm -hmm. say. As you were trying to figure out 
where you fit as a young American man. At some point, you were drawn to black American music. Maybe that's reductive, because I know you studied classical, Western classical music from the time you were a young boy also. You may not have known if there was space for you at first, but you were drawn to play it. I, I guess I'm curious about just your early relationship with jazz music. Where it started for me, it didn't have any name, <laughs> because it started with me, on the one hand, like you said, taking violin lessons in Western classical music when I was starting when I was three. <laughs> and when I say Western classical music, actually what I was doing was the Suzuki method, which is basically it teaches you by ear. And you don't think of it as, well, this is European high art music. You actually think like, this is something that's for kids, you know, because <laughs> it's like both basically they're teaching you how to play Twinkle, Twinkle Little Star, stuff like that. Hmm. Then the other thing was that my sister was playing piano. <clears throat> she started on piano at the same time I started on violin. She was a few years older. So we had a piano in the house. And at some point we started just banging on it together. And that was like the moment that everything hmm. kind of took hold for me where I was like, we can do this. Like, you know, so, so I started playing piano by ear from then. And that's basically all I ever did as a pianist. You know, I played by ear. What that meant was playing whatever I heard off the radio, mm -hmm. Michael Jackson, the Bee Gees, you know, I got into Prince, super deep into Prince. Yeah. Um, the Police, Beatles, you know, like whatever was on the radio in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Um, you know, Whitney Houston. <laughs> yeah. Um, Aerosmith. I don't know. Just any old thing. I would just try to figure out what it was. Like, what were they doing? What was the bass line? What was the guitar player mm -hmm. doing? Could I imitate it on the piano? I didn't necessarily have any formal understanding until I was like 12. I remember I took some theory classes at Eastman. That's when I was like, I remember like analyzing Bach chorales and stuff. Was that a common thing for a 12-year-old to do, to take a theory class at Eastman? Were there other 12-year-olds in the class? I don't remember who else was in the class. It was probably like high, sc high school kids. Yeah. Summer uh, middle thing? School or... not. Maybe, maybe middle school kids, maybe mostly high school kids. They let me do it for whatever reason. I don't know why. <laughs> I think my mom just wanted to keep me out of trouble, so she signed me up for this thing. I don't know. I don't actually remember how it came about. I remember taking the bus to downtown Rochester. Um, yeah, so that gave me a little bit of grounding. Like, oh, so these things have names mm -hmm. and they lead into each other. They have these different relationships and stuff. So then like <clears throat> suddenly I knew what a G minor seven chord was and where it fit into F major and stuff like that. So I didn't have like jazz language like i didn't know about chord voicings or functioning in a rhythm section or anything like that hmm. so it was still all like very basic at that time then when i was i think 14 i was led into the high school jazz ensemble but he said like well you don't know these basic things that you need to know in order to play in the rhythm section so so then he referred me, the director referred me to this local jazz pianist in Rochester named Andy Calabrese, who's still out there doing it. <laughs> still a great player. Um, <laughs> and uh, I just had like three lessons with him. Hmm. And he showed me how to read a lead sheet. He showed me some very basic voicings because I had enough theory that I could kind of like, he could just like give me like scale degrees 
Mm-hmm. He could kind of give me a schematic for voicings. You know, it didn't have to. He didn't have to spell everything out. Mm-hmm. He showed me how you might voice a ballad. Mm-hmm. You know, and then he just like loaned me records. He said, "Go check these out, transcribe them, or like learn them, try to figure out what's going on." You know, it was very loose. And then from there, I started going to the library. This is in the eighties, mid eighties, eighty six. 85 86 87 checking out lps and what was on the shelves then was like a bunch of things on columbia a bunch of things on ecm i checked out a bunch of miles and a bunch of herbie and i was like wait herbie from rocket this is the same herbie hancock who did rocket who i saw on tv on the beginnings of mtv Mm -hmm. and the infamous was it 1982 grammys when he won the grammy for rocket and Mm -hmm. performed on stage with the whole the dancing robots who came to life and all that you know it was like totally. legendary and the guitar i mean all that stuff was like so iconic for me as an 11 year old when mm-hmm. that happened it was unforgettable you know it was like life-changing world-changing <laughs> <laughs> but then i was like wait herbie hancock has a a different band that has like an upright bass in it and like what's all this so then i was like learning about ron carter mm-hmm and um tony williams and trying to follow what they were doing like i thought i understood something about harmony but i couldn't yet parse what ron and herbie were doing in terms of that you know i was trying you know and i remember i got there's an album from that time i was just listening to it again the other day and it still just still kills it's just called herbie hancock quartet with ron and tony and winton <laughs> winton from 1983 Oh my God, this is this record is like definitive for me. I listened to that thousands of times. one thing led to another and then i was just sort of just checking out everything i could and trying to absorb it trying to f- learn how to function in that music it was kind of in a relative vacuum i mean i was in the suburbs and you know like i had some peers we kind of had a group together where we would butcher standards at the local old folks home <laughs> but <laughs> but we uh we were still very much beginners what did your parents make of your musical life did they encourage you to think about doing it professionally did they have any sense that that could be a an outcome for you that you might want to pursue it eventually as a career well it's like i said i mean nobody knew that any of us could be artists like literally wasn't on the table it wasn't clear whatsoever that that might be available and certainly like when People come here as immigrants striving, living somewhat precariously at first, Mm -hmm. struggle to get a foothold, you know, bringing with them whatever set of privileges they had, like good educations, you know, still like they didn't sign up for their kids to become artists. Like they didn't, they didn't go through all this to then like, here, have a precarious life yourself. You'll love it. (laughs) You know, like actually what they cared about was our security. So that was all, you know, it was, I mean, what parent doesn't actually in a world where nothing seemed guaranteed they wanted us to have as much security as we could sure 
it's basically conservative, like socially conservative in the sense of like careful, you know. That said, they drove me to all these things. They were very supportive. They felt like it was enriching me. And actually, my dad loved music. He was he was really um, he could have been a musician. Hmm. Actually, he apparently when he was a little kid, he used to win these vocal competitions until his father basically like shamed it out of him. So then he ended up quitting. But he always had the the ear for it. He loved it. He loved music. So it sounds like maybe he was determined not to shame it out of you the way his father had yeah. shamed it out of him. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Um, I didn't choose the path of an artist. It what didn't reveal itself to me, the path of an artist, until I was 23. Yeah. And so at that point, it took a little bit of convincing because I had seemed to be on this other path to do something else. And um, Do you think that the other path that you were on, this sort of academic path, was maybe the result of having been raised in a more conservative immigrant house where it just that made the most sense. That was what was expected of you. Uh, yeah, I guess like some of that just governed the choices that I made, even if no one was really forcing me to make them. Yeah. Uh, it seemed like it was that, that value system, I guess, you know, my dad was, uh, he was a pharmaceutical chemist. He worked for corporations, but he came, he was a sort of pro science kind of person. So that seemed like, the thing to do when the path of an artist revealed itself to you i mean I, I i like that language and and i've heard you say it a couple of times or something similar to it what is the path of an artist as you see it i mean wh what does that mean and, and what is the job of an artist it seems like by the time you came to that conclusion that it was available to you and that you wanted to pursue it you had a sense of what it would mean i think so many people actually don't ask what it means before they get started. They just like to play their instrument, and the next thing you know, they're trying to make a living. <laughs> but, you know, right, this sounds right, like right. A, a real deliberate and an intentional moment in your, in your life. Yeah. What I want to say is the job of an artist is to bear witness and tell the truth <laughs> and take care of your audience. Hmm. And... Um, build community through those those acts. And did you see that? Do you think you understood that at, in your early 20s when you thought, okay, I want to devote myself to this, and, and part of that would mean I want to devote myself to being honest and telling the truth and taking care of my audience and bearing witness? You had a sense of that. It was starting to dawn on me then, yeah, I think so. Particularly that it was beyond, you know, like you say, just playing an instrument extremely well which i didn't by the way like i don't think i was an awesome pianist at that time i'm not i still don't actually but i had a lot to learn i had a lot of like what felt like remedial work to do to just catch up to hmm. people who would be my peers you know but because i had sort of been working all this stuff by myself <laughs> <laughs> off in some corner but not just by myself, but like among others, and especially among elders, you know, I was getting a sense of how to function, you know, how to function as a musician in the world, both like in the sense of like how to function at the rhythm section, but also like how to make it matter to people mm -hmm. and how to listen for that, how to listen for how it matters. And when I said take care of the audience, I mean that pay attention to what matters to them and also like you have to dare to believe that what matters to you can matter to them too you know and so that's kind of that 
leap you have to make, a leap of faith that, okay, I worked on this, I care about it, I put a lot of my time into making this feel like something, and I want you to feel it too. Mm -hmm. You can't take that for granted. You know, like you learn when you travel, when you play for people in like Macedonia or in Beijing or something, you know, like when you get around the world and are encountering audiences who know nothing about you or have nothing, have no um, existing assumptions about you. Mm -hmm. Or if they do, they're not going to be in your, in your favor, <laughs> you know? So then like, how do you nonetheless make contact? And actually um, maybe catch them off guard by inviting them to feel along with you. Yeah. Then when I said bearing witness, like what is it that you're sharing with them in those moments? Like what, what do you have to reveal to them that they don't already have? Hmm. Or where can you take them that they haven't already been um, in a way that matters? You know, you know, I spoke to Tyshawn Sorry over the summer. He actually had just come back from Italy with you. He was complaining about yeah. how he didn't have good restaurant experience in Perugia. He oh, was yeah. very disappointed. Yeah, yeah. I should have been more attentive to that. That was probably my doing. <laughs> but he said uh, the same thing. He said, I want to give people an experience that they maybe haven't had. I mean, he distilled it sort of down to, to that. I want to give a listener an experience that they might not have had before. Well, we've done a lot of that with people together, he and yeah. I, over the last 20-odd years, you know. You know, in some ways, we learned that together, mm -hmm. I'd say. Like, um, you know, that you can actually carry an audience somewhere they didn't expect to go or didn't know they could go, didn't know they were allowed to go, hmm. you know. And that's not to to harm or, <laughs> like, to, to, like, confuse them. It's actually the, like, part of what we're doing is we're getting there, too, you know. So it's it might be new to us, too. And that's part of it, that we're all in it together. So when you talk about having to maybe catch up a little bit just on the instrument, I mean, you sort of had a determination and a sense that you wanted to do this, but then you had to catch up on the instrument. It's, I know that after doing your undergrad at Yale, you went to Berkeley for graduate school, and it's sort of often said about you that you came of age musically in Berkeley while you were at graduate school in Berkeley. What was the scene like in Berkeley, and what, what did it mean to you to be playing there? Just to be clear, you mean Berkeley, California? Yes, sorry, Berkeley, Cal UC Berkeley. Yeah, yes, UC thank Berkeley, you. yeah. And partly like it was Oakland. Like I moved initially to Oakland to this apartment on 47th and Telegraph. And it so happened that across the street on 48th and Telegraph <laughs> was this club called the Birdcage. And um, I remember in like summer of 92, I was walking by and I was like, they're playing music in there. Let me see what that is. And then it turned out that it was this jam session on Sunday nights. <laughs> and uh, somehow I became the house pianist at this jam session. That session was run by this guy, Robert Porter, who was like in the 70s. And he had been a Black Panther and um, played trumpet, super generous and very good humored and hilarious very kind and um loved to nurture young people and like i was 50 years younger than him and i found myself uh hmm. in this thing like week after week 
it was kind of like a boot camp in a way it was very gentle and people were warm and kind to me but like i had to you know you might play someone might call invitation and there's suddenly like seven saxophonists who all want to take a solo and so like you're comping for seven saxophone solos on this tune and you have to try to make it work and not not be boring mm -hmm. um so you have to respond to what's happening or then like some singer might show up and call a tune you've never played before in a key it's not usually in and then like you have to just jump in and do it you know <laughs> like that kind of thing or actually a couple of times pharaoh sanders came through and we played tunes together and like you know i had to learn polka dots and moonbeams for him like i learned it on the spot with him yeah so like that was like you let you have to learn to be nimble but it was also in the very much in the context of community like i remember people singing along to those old ballads you know hmm. and it was like a joint it was just this joint there like people would all kinds of people would show up you know people who were down and out people who were dressed to the nines mm -hmm. <laughs> ex-cons uh you know kids <laughs> mm -hmm. like uc berkeley students um all kinds of folks really it was really it was interesting and you were at uc berkeley you were in graduate school at that time yeah in physics initially but i became pretty soon this like by night i was a piano player on the scene <laughs> you know? i was playing you know through that through an environment like that you start to get other gigs so i was starting to play around town with other people and um yeah uh just one thing after another but it was also like the bay area was a pretty eclectic scene it wasn't this in super entrenched bebopper kind of yeah. there was that but there were a lot of other things going on and there were like elder musicians from oakland there was this guy who used to play saxophone with gil scott heron who i got to play with a bit there was a drummer well a couple of drummers who i played with a lot one was donald bailey hmm. the drummer you may know from the jimmy smith records mm -hmm. or carmen mcrae records brilliant innovator like incredible feel and so interactive and so inventive so he had a rehearsal band an octet called eight misbehaving <laughs> eight misbehaving <laughs> why i say rehearsal band like we just get together at his house every week and play yeah for no gigs <laughs> like playing with actually a legendary drummer every week for no gigs yeah. like actually just because the music was its own reward mm -hmm. you know there was another drummer who also had a group like this named ew wainwright he had toured with mccoy in the 70s and 80s mm -hmm. and with pharaoh sanders also and had studied with elvin so he came out of that yeah that way of playing and uh um he may have also at some point been affiliated with horace tapscott and that scene in la mm -hmm. yeah um total fiery like another very generous guy like incredible player like all this passion and intensity and we'd play a lot of mccoy tunes and stuff we'd get together in his house every day every week he'd make us lunch you know and it would all be vegan mm -hmm. wow <laughs> and uh and then like he had some the group was called african roots of jazz and he had some gigs in the california state prison system mm -hmm. so we'd actually it was through this program called arts and corrections so we'd go play at like the maximum security ward at san quentin or in some of the more rural places like susanville 
over on the edge near Reno. Mm. Um, we drive all over California to do these things. What was it like playing for prisoners? It was amazing. I mean, it was like really talk about making it better, making it count. You know, these are people who have been abandoned. Essentially, they've been warehoused, and um, the system failed them. Essentially, and and uh, Wainwright used to call them political prisoners. A lot of them were young. You know, there was this ghastly law that had been nicknamed three strikes and you're out yeah which meant that like your third and that your third offense even if it was just something like possession yeah would put you in prison so there were like 18 year olds you know it was like 98 percent black and latinx folks um and so anyway how they were as an audience was like super grateful basically the best audiences i think i've ever experienced they were just thankful that anybody showed them any amount of care you know so that was really formative for me those kinds of experiences i also played in this hip-hop group called midnight voices <laughs> for years i was in it for years from like 94 until you know five years after that it was actually one of the main MCs is a now a pretty well-known theater artist named will power mm -hmm. And he would, even back then, he would write these kind of like hip hop musicals for us. It was actually, it was way before Hamilton. We were doing it. We were, in fact, it was better. <laughs> it wasn't like telling this lie about American history. It was actually <laughs> really interesting. This was back in 97. We did a show called 2017 Cure, No Cure. It was about AIDS in the black community. It was kind of like a bunch of sketches with music and the music was hip hop. Was Michael Franti in the Bay Area at that time, too? Is he it, was. Yeah. In fact, the drummer who was in Midnight Voices had been in Disposable Heroes. A lot of overlap Yeah, those scenes, yeah. I mean, all of these examples that you're giving um, paint a very diverse and broad picture of early examples for you of what it would mean to be an artist, right? Whether it's playing in a local jam session and seeing the way the community interacts with that music or in a prison or at somebody's house just for the sake of playing or playing yeah. hip-hop which is for our generation what would be considered to be more kind of pop music well it was for you it was youth yeah culture. youth music you know, it yeah. was basically playing for people my age and younger yeah when i was in this is when i was in my mid-20s yeah and then the other thing that i'd say was formative in the bay area was connecting with this community of asian american musicians there's a collective called Asian Improv Arts. Uh, they had their own record label, which put out my first two albums. And they had their own, they still do have their own jazz, I mean, Asian American Jazz Festival. It's called the, the Asian American Jazz Festival. I think it's the first of its kind in the US. It was started in the 80s. And they gave me some of my first major gigs in the Bay Area. Being a part of that, um, it was that, you know, a lot of, Americans of mostly East Asian descent, uh, Chinese, Japanese, some Korean, Filipino. And, you know, they were basically community organizers. 
because all the things, all the work they did was in service of community. They would do these community events in Chinatown or Japantown. And some of it was like organizing around specific issues. Uh, we would do these commemorative events around Japanese internment. You know, I was the first South Asian and that affiliated with that group. So I, it took me a while to sort of make sense of it for myself or my relationship to it. But they gave me this like platform and this kind of context in which what I was doing could matter, you know, and this is sort of what I meant, you know. Well, this all ties back into the question of what is the path of an artist and what is the job of an artist? And, and it sounds like in a way, I mean, it's very, for you, it's, it's mission driven. I mean, there's a sense of mission behind what you're doing that, that you, you want the work to be about more than the notes. I've been using this word a lot, but like, um, what does it mean to matter to somebody? So much has to happen <laughs> for that to even be possible. The more we can understand about the context and the process, the more it can actually make a difference in someone's life. You know, that's mm -hmm. basically what it boiled down to for me. It wasn't even about me. It was actually just about uh, how might I make a difference for somebody else. What was interesting, you know, it's funny when I talk about this to people on the East Coast and people in New York yeah. and people in the jazz business and whatever else, you know, like I remember who was I talking to? Someone, I told someone about the band with Wainwright and he said, are there recordings of this? Did you guys make any recordings? And I was like, we weren't in the music business, <laughs> you know, like that's a kind of key distinction here <laughs> that like my whole twenties were not in the music business. I was making music and playing gigs and stuff, but it was like, you know, the purpose of it was not to make money off of music. You know, the purpose of it was something else entirely. And so that was actually my foundation. I think that when I came East, in my, when I was 27, that was like my rudder in a way, like my kind of sense of why do this? You know, it wasn't merely careerism, you know, it was actually like, can I uh, make a space to, you know, I used to think about like how I would come up with a project idea. And often it was like, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and feel like, oh, this needs to happen. <laughs> you know, like this needs to happen. I need to. Let me just see if I can pull this together. And who can who who can I do this with? What can we do together? You know that kind of thing. Is that how you decided to start making those records with Mike Ladd? Yes, very much. Yeah. Came to you in a dream. Well, it was partly like I knew him. I had met him because I had been on a. I shared a bill with him with that hip hop group. In fact, you know when I ran into him again, I was like, we should uh, find a way to make something together. And uh, we didn't know what yet. This was like in 99 or 2000. But gradually it was kind of like, I really just followed my gut about it. Like what, what, um, it wouldn't be about following a trend. Like, mm -hmm. oh, hip hop and jazz together yeah. again. You know, it wasn't yeah. that. It was actually like, well, what do we both care about and want to address? And what, how, what is it that we could do together being who we are? And where might we do it? And whose money can we spend that isn't ours? <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
uh, even if it was like this, basically this big money losing proposition, <laughs> it was still like, at least it was, let's see if we can make it so that it's not our money. Right. Well, right, and but that speaks also to this thing that you just said about how you weren't in the music business. We weren't in the music business. We were making music back in the Bay. We, you know, you weren't thinking about it as a business. And it sort of raises the question, well, so how was it for you when at a certain point you realize, well, there is money involved here. I mean, there's money if you're going to do this as a profession, then you have to make money. And in order to get the projects made, you have to raise money or you have to lose money or, you know, I mean, somebody's money is involved at some point. Right. And um, it's almost like a privilege for me to be able to say that I didn't care about money. Like, of course, I cared yeah. about like trying to subsist in New York and trying to get off the ground, you know, not be gig to gig forever. Initially, it was like, how might I think about projects rather than gigs? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, how do I get support for projects? Then, like, eventually when, you know, I was starting to tour and bring a band around with me and then sort of be accountable to them, like, uh, okay, so we need to have this up and running. Yeah. Like, we need to make this work. We need to be responsible. Like, there's other other mouths to feed here. And I think particularly, I mean, I, uh, you know, I did a lot of stuff in the early 2000s, but I think it was in 09 with the trio, the first, the first trio album, Historicity. Yes. When something sort of cracked open for me and I was touring a lot as a leader. Not that I hadn't toured at all as a leader, but I was, you know, like suddenly in circulation in the jazz business in a way that I'd probably never been before. Were you surprised? I mean, that was a big year. That was people loved that record. It was on all these lists. Were you surprised? Were you surprised? Were you surprised? Well, to me, it was like, well, I've kind of been doing this the whole time. So yeah. where were you all? <laughs> yeah last year or like the last five years and also like it wasn't the first time that i got critical recognition yeah or even an award but it was maybe more that there was a kind of consensus that kind of took hold that i had never experienced before um and so that the main thing was like oh so finally we actually get to really put this into practice you know like we're gonna play hundreds of shows you know for tens of thousands of people maybe hundreds of thousands of people so then you learn something like oh this actually works in ways that i wasn't even aware this communicates this re reaches people in ways that i didn't know it could you know hmm. so we learned a lot together i'd say like marcus and stefan and i in those years about just what was possible you know and taishan too because often in those years he would often like half the gigs he would sub for marcus so I'd say like from historicity to Chalorando from 09 to 2012, those two albums, there's 
they're pretty different in yeah. the sense of like the footprint of the band is now like a little deeper like we had this kind of deeper groove it was road tested in a way we've just been through a lot of living together and i think that's kind of what you hear that's different on that record like growth essentially like that we had been given the privilege to grow in public which is what successful bands get to to do yeah that's know, right which is like it's hard to do otherwise it's hard to pull off i remember <laughs> there's this uh one of those cecil taylor albums from the 60s maybe unit structures or conquistador one of those uh the liner notes <laughs> he says well we didn't have really any gigs so i had to simulate the progress of a working band by rehearsing all the time and that's actually what i'd always done like after seeing that and like all the bands I had had prior to that, the quartet even with Marcus Stefan and Rudresh or earlier than that, Taishan on drums in that band or with the group called Fieldwork, which is why the second Fieldwork album is called Stimulated Progress because we didn't have a lot of gigs, but we would get together and rehearse all the time, like for days and weeks on end, you know, working on stuff, trying to develop something new that wasn't already out there, you know. That's where a lot of it came from. But then like, yeah, then we got to do it in public and that was very different, very different indeed. Like actually doing it in the context of audience makes all the difference. Cause um, I remember when we, uh, <laughs> so on the Cello Rondo, we tracked, we we recorded that um, Henry Threadgill composition, Little Pocket Sized Demons. And I remember uh, I told him that I was working on it. I transcribed it. I showed him my transcription and he said, yeah, you got it pretty, right uh, i said we're rehearsing it tomorrow you want to come so he came to our rehearsal and heard us play it and he's like yeah you pretty much have it together uh are you guys going to get to perform it before you record it and i was like yeah we're playing it in connecticut tomorrow at this festival and he said good because you'll find something there that you won't find anywhere else yeah and that's like wisdom for the ages right there <laughs> yeah <laughs> You describe a part of your life that has taken place kind of through a form of institutional learning, maybe not even the musical part of your life, but I mean, you're very familiar with what it is to thrive in a university setting. And you also describe all of this musical learning that took place kind of on your own and through people, through community. Mm -hmm. You find yourself teaching today. I mean, that's a big part of your life is, is as a teacher. How do you bring together these two worlds into your role as an educator the musical aspect of it that was taught through community not not institutionally right. and then the, the fact that you you're an academic yes i guess i am i mean i, I like to pretend <laughs> i'm not because <laughs> like you know i show up there as an artist i was hired as an artist hmm. but i am a professor so i you know i'm part of a lot of different conversations Basically, I, what it means to show up as an artist in a space like that is to show up as a community organizer, mm. is to be like, okay, I know you guys got here 
by seeming exceptional to mm -hmm. whoever lets you in. And that had to do with individual achievement. But let's take that off the table for a little while and just figure out what it is we can do together. You know, so it's really just as basic a question as that. What can we do together? That then um, starts to dismantle that value system of achievement and domination and individual success, you know. Yeah. Even just take the word success off the table, you know. If success isn't your goal, <laughs> like on commercial terms or like sort of worldly terms, what might we prioritize instead? Which then is like, how do we support each other? How do we build something that matters to us and to each other and to others who might join us? You know, some of what we do, what we do might then be public facing. So then it's like, how are we accountable to those publics? Those are the questions we ask. You know, every musician is a student of the music. So, you know, it's like we actually, I remember Esperanza used to put it like, I'm co-learning with these students, you know, that's a good way to put it. We're all just eternal students. Maybe I've been in it a little longer, so I might have some other points of reference that I can share. Having thought through certain things already that they might be struggling with, so I might be able to help them. But we're there to learn together. That's how I see it. Someone asked me, do you like teaching? And I said, <laughs> I like learning. <laughs> you know, and so like, then like, who's with, who's in it with me? Who wants to do this together? You know? I love that answer. And it's funny because uh, somebody I interviewed years ago, I mean, I've interviewed people that are kind of in all areas of the creative space. And somebody said to me, you know, the question you should ask all your guests is what is success to you? What does success mm -hmm. mean to you? So I love mm -hmm. the the sort of response to that from you, which is to say, well, what would happen if we did the opposite? What if we removed the word success from the conversation? Now what's left? Now what are we doing? What can we do? What do we want to do? Yeah. And, you know, and you can also think about, I remember Wadada, Wadada Leo Smith said to me one time that, or I don't think he even said it to me. He said it when we brought him to Banff. And so he said it to the students, you know, he said something about how success for project is about realizing the goals on the terms of the project, which then becomes very specific. It's, it's sort of like you dismantle the term as some kind of like ideal, you yeah. know, and you think instead of like, well, what, what do we want to happen here? And can, how do we, you know, what is this? Yeah. 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 And also that the realization of something might be its own success. Yeah. You know, you know, I said to you at the beginning, well, we're not in a cycle right now, so we can talk about whatever comes up. And you said, well, there's always some kind of a cycle that we're in. So, <laughs> I mean, what cycle are you in right now? Oh, well, there's some things coming, coming down the pike. Uh, yeah. I made an album with Aruj Aftab, the vocalist and Shazad Ismaili basses. It's a trio album and it's coming out in March on Verve. It's called Love in Exile. And it's really beautiful. I'm so proud of it. It's really a special, special project. Very dear to my heart. So I'm excited for that. That's one big thing on the rise. We'll be doing a bunch of touring with that group in the spring and fall. What's the music like? I don't know how to describe it. All I can say is that we came together and created these worlds together that are sort of they're unplanned but they feel like they were meant to be so it's like we are able to kind of co-construct these things in real time that uh, none of us can account for <laughs> like the level of 
order that they have, the mm-hmm. level of um, feeling, the feel like they were meant to be there. You know, so I, I just am really excited for the world to hear it. I'm playing piano and Fender Rose electronics, so it's got a lot of different textures in it. Um, Shazad also plays some Moog synthesizer. The timbres and textures are pretty varied, but Aruj's voice is kind of at the center of it. But then she says that she just kind of operates like an instrument. Hmm. That's pretty accurate too. Yeah, so that's one thing. Um, there's another trio album with Linda and Taishan in the can that'll be out probably late in 23 on ECM. And there's also a recording lurking of some orchestral pieces I wrote that may come out sometime soon. <laughs> <laughs> the Boston Modern Orchestra Project recorded it. So it's kind of been piecing together over the years, but uh, they're threatening to release it soon. So <laughs> it might come out. So a few different things, three very different things yeah. might happen all the same year, which is nice. Well, Vijay, thanks so much for talking to me today. This was such a pleasure, and um, I've been looking forward to talking to you for a long time. Thanks so much for having me, and uh, hope to see you in person sometime. Yeah, man. There he was, my friends, Vijay Iyer. What a great talk. I'll be back again in your headspace before you know it. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org studios.